Where does your optimism come from? You know, in all the years I've been alive, I don't think I've ever been actually asked that question, you know, just straight up blunt. I certainly have thought about it. It didn't all come from home, but the foundation was there. You know, the drive to go after your goal was there. And I think you got to be optimistic if you're really driving towards that goal because it isn't going to be easy. And if it is, well, great, then kind of exhale and say, I I got here pretty much without too many car crashes or bumps. But I think you got to be realistic that there's going to be a lot of things that could happen when you're going after a goal. Hey everyone, I'm Claude Silver, and I am an emotional optimist. For me, there's absolutely no false or toxic positivity in emotional optimism. It is simply an awareness that we have the capacity to influence how we feel and how we think, and that even in our darkest times, we know that the light is actually always there. So join me as I ask each and every one of my guests what emotional optimism means to them. Hey, Scott, it's so great to see you. Thank you for coming on the Emotional Optimism podcast with me. I'm, I'm delighted to have you. Oh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm dressed, you know, for the, for the occasion. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you, Claude. So good to see you. So good to see you. And thank you for representing. I love it. And, and actually, we're going to get into optimism in a second. That's actually one of my big questions for you, because you probably are the most optimistic person I've ever come across, which is... <laughs> It's just a joy to know you. Before we get before we go there, I always like to ask our guests, when you were five, six, seven years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, it was a pilot. Like it always. was it was probably clear at age three. You know, I can remember back that far. Um it was Star Wars, honestly. And if you haven't picked that up in the background yet, you know, for, for some of the people looking around at what's in the background. Yeah, I, you know, in 1977, that film came out. My parents took me to that. And um, I wanted to fly the Millennium Falcon. That's it. That was the dream, you know. Um, and I didn't really sway too far from that. You know, I, I think I kind of dabble with the idea of I really love movies and music soundtracks and things like that. I I think it just moves me in ways that um, I was really in tune to. And uh, had I not probably gone down the pilot track, I think I would have gone down that kind of movie track and film production or directing um, because I love stories and I love the idea of creating a story and then bringing that out to others um, and seeing what they pick from that. But it was really about flying and, um, I didn't really grow up with any flying experience. And, you know, um, when I got in the Air Force, that was the dream was to fly. And that's what I did for about 20 years. So it's mind blowing. I mean, a couple of things there. One, I love the Millennium Falcon. I had it. Uh, I had a massive crush on um, on Harrison Ford. And, uh, um, and, or, or I wanted to be that character. I can't quite, yeah. remember. you know, I was busy yeah. with PI Joes and certainly not Barbies, but, um, <laughs> I too just loved that movie. And then the empire strikes back and just the, the magnitude of that, you know, just watching it on a big screen when we were kids, like that was, Oh yeah. Sucked you in, you know, I mean, Han Solo was like the guy for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's it was just amazing. You know, later when I started learning about George Lucas and how he came to think through these films and things like that, it's amazing to me just the thought that went into it all, the boundaries he was pushing, uh, the boundaries his team and production team, Industrial Light Magic, was pushing uh, to really kind of set the bar for how movies should be made. I, so I think I later on I fell in love with just the idea of how this was made and Mm. it kept getting better and better. But yeah, the stories are so good. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting. We're coming at it from slightly different angles. For me, I, as soon as I found Joseph Campbell in, when I went to study deep, deep transpersonal psychology, I learned that the hero's journey, the actual book he wrote and the philosophies around the hero's journey 
was, uh, you know, he had that conversation with George Lucas and, and, and Star Wars is based around the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. You know, Luke, the darkness, going through the, going through his own darkness, trying to find the light, the force within him. I mean, it's very, it's very Christ-like and it's, it's, there's so yeah. much, it's such rich material uh, in Star Wars. If you think of the, the mythologies and the stories and so you just said, I just love the stories. And for me, I, I agree. It's, they're so ripe with, with humanity, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I certainly noticed that as a kid and, you know, that purpose and vision in my head was so clear about wanting to fly someday. You know, I don't think I formulated it in my mind that like it would be in a military capacity, um, you know, at first. Uh, but I also didn't have this vision of being an airline pilot either um it was just i wanted to fly and um if i could get to that point in some way somehow i was going to do it but um you know my father was in the military he was drafted and and you know he certainly talked about well if you want to fly you have to be an officer in the military and it, in order to be an officer you have to have a degree and you know so there are some steps that you have to go through to get to there so you know just like it's important for a leader to have that vision and then give their team the milestones. That's what was produced for me was I have the vision. I have the milestones and goals that I need to hit. Now it's time to pursue it, you know, at whatever path this is going to take. And uh, it was a lot of ups and downs getting there. You know, we, we, we didn't have a lot of money growing up and, you know, we, we had, uh, we were, we were okay. You know, uh, we were comfortable where we're at, but I wasn't taking flying lessons. I mean, that's really expensive. Even back in the 80s, uh, 80s and 90s, um, I'd maybe gone up in an airplane like a Cessna once or twice. You know, that's it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I I, I was determined to uh, uh, get into the military at some some way. And I really wanted to serve my country. That was very, very powerful to me. Uh, and, you know, I applied to the Air Force Academy, ROTCs, and and basically took really the first option that came along because I wanted to do this for myself. And, and yeah, I ended up uh, getting into ROTC and then later in the Air Force and then later got a, a pilot slot and went through that training. And, and uh, I loved every minute of it. But I also then fell in love with the leadership journey that I found in the Air Force, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that you knew at such a young age you wanted to be a pilot and thus you went for it. You figured out the path and in terms of you know wanting to serve your country, is that something uh, your your father obviously being in the military, I'm sure that played a role, but was there something else that drew you to you know, being a proud American or, or was it literally in your home all day? No, it, you know, it wasn't like in my face all day. Um you know, I I think it a little bit of it had to do with movies that I watched. You know, I'm very patriotic person by nature, you know, and I and I think, you know, looking back to who I was as a kid, I was always out in the community doing something, serving something bigger than myself. And then to me, this was just another chance for me to do something bigger than myself. Yep. And I love the core values, you know, within uh, the Air Force, you know, integrity first, service above self, excellence in all we do. I live those as well. Uh, doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. You know, we've all made mistakes. Uh, but, you know, I that is kind of a lifestyle that I wanted to live. And then it was also, again, a way for me to accomplish my dream uh, while serving at the same time. And it's always been about the people, though, the people I'm surrounded with. And that is such a great tribe to be with. And I loved every minute of it. And, um, you know, you may have done this uh, maybe you're in grade school. Do you remember maybe way back second, third grade, uh, they used to have these like bubble sheets you'd fill out that would tell you what you were going to be when you grew up based on certain questions they asked you. I you know, so I filled out this bubble sheet and, you know, it's like a hundred questions and you got your number two pencil and you put it in this big clanky machine and it spits out, here's what you're going to be when you grow up. <laughs> and it said for to me, I was either going to be a bus driver um, or a gas station attendant. Well, I tell you, what I ended up flying in the Air Force was an air refueling aircraft, a gas station in the sky, and a cargo plane, which is kind of like being a bus driver. So I'll tell you, that thing was dead accurate. That's you know? so funny. <laughs> they just didn't have the wings. They just, just 
Yeah, they didn't tell me the form of community or about exactly. transportation. Yeah. I love I love that. That is amazing. That is amazing. I, I really love that. You know, one of the going back to Star Wars, one of the questions I was gonna ask you was, you know, this love of Star Wars, because I've known you now for six years at least, six and a yeah. half years, and have known you and your son really like partake in that the adventure and the epic story of Star Wars. If you do, do you identify with with one or more of the characters there in the in the the saga? It's not a trilogy anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know. I yeah. I, I like you. I think I wanted to be Han Solo. You know, I wasn't as tall as Han Solo. I'm only five six. You know, so I'm not this big. You know, tall, dark, and handsome dude that's gonna you know, the Indiana Jones style, um, that probably doesn't fit me if I'm going to be perfectly honest, but I certainly wanted to be him. Um, I think I am more of a Luke. I, you know, I think there, you know, there have been struggles in uh, finding out what I want to be. And I, you know, I think Luke has a good vision, but it's, it's just not as clear. And the path is just, he's thrown a lot of things and he's had to work through a lot of things. But I think he does know, even early on, like, this is my path. It's just coming to grips with, I'm acknowledging it now, Mm -hmm. you know, letting it in and let it, let yourself get centered in on it. Because you see it later, like in in Jedi, right? He comes in the first time we see him, he's a Jedi now. And I I definitely want to be a Jedi. I mean, that's, you know, that's about the coolest thing ever. And, uh, um, you know, the lifestyle, but you know, he's, that doesn't mean he probably still doesn't kind of struggle with that. You know, even even some of these Jedis we see throughout uh, the various television shows now, there's a lot going on there. There's a yeah. lot of dynamics. I love seeing that from um, from Disney as they kind of work through all these other anthologies and some of the canon stuff. And uh, but, yeah, I'm probably more of a Luke. Um, definitely not a Chewie. Uh, you know, def- definitely not an R2. Although I will say R2 is like the Radar Riley is in MASH, right? Is that one you can always count on, a little bit goofy, mm-hmm. you know, not the main character, but boy, just comes through with the right tool at the right time yeah, and, and delivers. And I I kind of like playing that role too. I'm very resourceful in trying to pull different things in to maybe help the team out, you know, in a, in a time of need. I, I like that role too, so... It's really interesting that you say that because that, how you described R2 is really um, symbolic of a lot of leadership skills as well. Yeah. He's a listener. (laughs) Yeah. He's a listener and he's a um, connector and a provider and uh, problem solver, Um, you know, solution oriented, even though, you know, he's in this little robot, he's there for a purpose and similar to how you were just describing the Jedis and how they're they're portraying Jedis. I think what dawned on me was they're showing the complexities of a human, the complexities of what we go through as we travel through our journey, as long as it will be. Hopefully, you know, we're we're both here for a hundred years, but it's there will be winding roads and 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 potholes. And of course there'll be incredible vistas and and mountains, uh, oh, mountaintops. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've been calling it really like there's something for me. I really enjoy being a part of the messiness of a human, my own messiness. I've had to come to terms with, and probably will have to come to terms with many, 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 many more times before I take yeah. last breath, because it's it's just the way life is, and I enjoy being a passenger with other people while they're figuring that out too. It's a real honor for me as a, not only a leader, as a human, just to be invited into that journey with them. Yeah. Really enjoy that. Um, so we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to pivot a, a little bit, not, not not much of a pivot, but you are one of the most optimistic people I know. And I wanted to ask you if that came from home the dinner table when you were a kid is that just innately who in you where does your optimism come from you know in all in all the years i've been alive i don't think i've ever been actually asked that question you know just straight up blunt um i certainly have thought about it 
it, it didn't all come from home, uh, you know, but the foundation was there. Um, you know, the drive to to go after your goal was there. And I think you got to be optimistic if if you're really driving towards that goal, because it isn't going to be easy, you know, and, and if it is, well, great, then kind of exhale and say, I, I, I got here pretty much without too many car crashes or bumps. But, um, you know, I think you got to be realistic that there's there's going to be a lot of things that could be uh, that could happen on, you know, and when you're going after a goal. You know, I've been a, I've been a part of a lot of teams. You know, whether it be football teams or baseball teams or 4-H groups or different community groups, where I've tried to surround myself with the those kinds of people and put those people in my in my kind of closest orbit, if you will. That has probably done more for my level of optimism than than anything else. Doesn't mean I didn't have people that weren't optimistic around me, but. I tried to make the right kind of deposits in the bank, you know, to use that analogy. And, you know, I would do like a 10 to one ratio of optimistic deposits versus negativity. Um, It just really bugged me to be around people that maybe play the victim card a little bit too much and, and they just can't see what is in front of them or Hey, this is just something you're, you know you can work through. Um, maybe I'm not the right person to help, but I can find you somebody. Um, and they're just not willing to maybe, you know, open up the aperture a little bit more or uh, reach out uh, a little bit more. Um, like I said, there's certainly been dark times, but um, you know, talking out loud uh, as a leader, being vulnerable enough to, to kind of talk out loud about some things. You know, showing up to a meeting, for example, and saying to your team, you know, on a weekly staff meeting, hey, folks, I, I know I, I owed you a decision on this today. I, I, you know, I'm a little bit less than 100% in the tank today. I do want to get to this decision today, but um, if I don't, it's just it's some things I'm working through. So please don't take anything personal. I've just in that little dialogue completely wiped out any perception, judgment, defensiveness that may pop up because I'm acting differently in front of my team now. Um, And then what the beautiful thing about that is they see you as a leader being that vulnerable to maybe share something. I'm not talking about sharing every deep, dark secret, um, but sharing things like emotions, which we used to not really talk about in the workplace, you know, check your emotions at the door, right? doesn't work. We're humans. We can't do it physically. You can't. So, but we say that phrase and we lived it for so long that it became kind of the acceptable way of leadership. And, um, it's not, and I'm actually trying to really fight against that, you know, and, and really dig into understanding and, and spreading the good word on things like emotional intelligence. It's okay to have a high level of positivity and understand the psychology of positivity. You know, Sean Aker, uh, I, I read everything he puts out in, in the universe because um, I have seen the levels of performance go higher. I have seen relationships get better just by incorporating, again, maybe a little of that 10 to 1 ratio, positivity, optimism. I can get more out of a team doing that than I can just kind of holding everything inside and kind of moping around and or maybe not saying anything at all. I'm just not being present. Right. So yeah. I think it comes through a lot of things, but I do get it from a lot of people. Like right. I see it from them and I just, you know, I, I, I just pull it in. So. Yeah. Well, it's knowing you now for a while, not you, you pull it in, but what I know is you give it out. I mean, you just give it yeah, out. I, I, yeah, I certainly do. I, and, and I get that because I know that because I get feedback from others that tell me, you know, you, you are so happy during this event, you know, this flood. I'm like, well, we're alive. Okay. We'll work through the flood on the base, but we're alive, you know? And, uh, um, so let's just thank whatever power you believe in, uh, that little thing you woke up today, we will deal with this problem and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll move forward. Um, there's a lot of crises that are, that are awful. Um, and I think again, what people really need in a crisis is uh, a little bit of level headedness. And, and I'd say they need just a little bit of a pick me up. And I've learned that even if it's subtle, um, that's a level of optimism that could really change the nature of a crisis and how you work through it. So. Yeah. I I, lo- I think that is um, so spot on. And I don't know if I've ever heard it de- even defined like that. You know, the pick me up, the 
the cheer, the cheerleader in us all, the I got your back goes so far. And I don't know how often we actually intentionally say that to someone like, I got your back. Come with me. I got you. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. We're swimming. We're in this together. Those types of things really, really help your teammates and other people feel to your point, pick me up, but also a sense of like, I'm not alone. I'm not in this alone. Yeah. Because the alone part can be really scary and, you know, lead to analysis paralysis where you're just stuck. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm a big fan of always trying to find a way to, to keep going, to, to keep moving. Um, and sometimes you got to do, you got to fall back on some tools to help you, uh, you know, okay, I tell you what, let's just get a small group over here. Um, let's brainstorm for five minutes here. You know, let's throw the stickies up on the wall and see what kind of a rich picture we can develop of this problem set. Uh, or maybe we haven't done enough of understanding the environment to go after this behavioral change. Um, so let's look at that first. Um, but it's where you, it's when you garner the inputs of others, uh, especially a, a group of folks who have a really diverse uh, perspective on thinking, uh, maybe it's um, you know their their own narratives, their own life's narratives that they bring to the table. Um, that's you know what we should really be talking about, and we are. Um, you know, we talk about diversity. Yeah, I'm really interested in the thought. You know, because we may be different color by skin, but we may have grown up in the same environment. Yeah. I, you know, so we may be thinking a little bit too alike. Um, yeah. But it, it's the thought side of it too. Um, that you also have to look at when we think about diversity. And uh, that's why I, I really love those discussions because I, I think people are seeing that value and they're asking really good questions mm-hmm. about others to get to know them below the surface of the water. Like this tip of the iceberg is just the 10% I see of you, but the other 90%, I need to learn, oh, you've got some superpowers here. I'm going to bring you to the table, you know, in this next uh, executive level meeting and I know you only work in the mailroom, yeah. But I see something here, yep. So I need our team, our leadership team, to hear you. Yeah. So, you know, you, that's really important. I love, love, love that you said that because, well, for one, yesterday I had that same conversation with someone who's uh, probably an associate director on a very large team, easy to kind of be a number on that team. And she and I met in the hallway, asked her how she was doing. And she was mentioning this, that, and the other. And I said, you know, I really want you to speak to this person in the C-suite. Do you know who this person is? No, I don't. Great. I really want them to get to know you and the thinking that you just shared with me. And I'd like to get you more exposure in the agency. Yeah. And her eyes lit up. And for me, I'm like, well, that's why I'm here. I'm here to connect the dots and want to make sure that you have, you can spread your wings and, and, and fly. And in order to do that sometimes, and certainly in matrixed organizations, you need someone to connect you to someone or something because it's awfully yeah. hard kind of finding your way. And I think the the gift that, that you and I both have had or have as leaders and leaders of large groups is the ability to not only be on the ground, but to see from 20,000 feet up, you know, what's, what's going on and what might be the chess moves and how can I help integrate these people or this person or this type of thinking into that you know, area there that is a little cloudy. And I think that this could be helpful. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've done that your whole career. I mean, that's, that's part of your, your leadership. Yeah, I think that, you know, you're a servant leader, Claude. I know I am too. I think that's a style that we kind of probably comes out pretty naturally for us. And, you know, what you you just described is kind of the action that a servant leader does, right? It's 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 cer- certainly serving the organization first, but really serving people yeah. first. It's, yeah. it's about the people. Um, and then, you know, the greatest test of a servant leader is do the people that you serve grow uh, as well, you know, because if, if you're not serving the people and they're not growing, I don't know if you can really call yourself a servant leader then. So, you know, like I said, that's a hard test. Are they growing? 
as well because of your leadership and and that connecting the dots or bringing somebody forward so that they have an opportunity to maybe imp- impress some a team um, for maybe a potential future opportunity. Yeah, I, I you know I really tried a lot to do that because. Um, it's not about the accolades I'm going to get as the senior leader. It's it's about what we are going to achieve. Bingo. So. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've heard me say this, and I know you say this in your own vernacular, like, it is not about me. I am here to really help you see the fruits of your labor, to turn you into a hero, to help you know, co-cultivate your leadership skills, but this is not about Claude and getting more stars on Claude's chest. I don't, I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of that same way. I'm like, you know, um, you know, I achieved a lot in, in, in the, in the air force, but, and I think even early on, you know, as I'm kind of, you know, figuring out leadership and what it really means to me and, and that, you know, yeah, I probably did chase the, oh, I want to be in that job or yeah, I'd surely like to get promoted. I, I mean, sure. who wouldn't want to have those things, sure. right? So it's, that's natural. But I think at a certain point, I think a leader needs to decide, are you in it for, for the rank and reputation or are you in it for another reason? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just went this other path. I'm like, re- regardless of what rank I, I make, whatever job I have, I'm going to enjoy where I'm at. Uh, while I can, and it's going to be about them. And, and, uh, you know, I think maybe a couple years before you and I met, um, you know, I started to make that transition. Um, but I tell you, I'll be honest, Club, when I saw, uh, Gary V talk about you and your, your position as the chief heart officer, I was like, Ooh, what is this? You know? And, and that's when I cold called you basically yes. over LinkedIn saying, I wanted to be you when I grow up. But what I was really trying to figure out was, could I could I accomplish the same ideas, the leadership style within this very hierarchical organization? And that's where I really took the learnings of, of Claude and brought them, you know, into my world. And uh, I'd, I'd say I was able to apply a lot. And and I think the people that I served and, and those I served for, I, I think we were better for it um, when when we were kind of operating under that people first focus, and and I think I think that's what I learned the most from you know just spending time with you, whether it's watching your content or talking, and you know, but uh, you can you can absolutely do this in the most stringent environments. Um, we don't have to just act like a, an author, authoritarian type style in these environments. Yeah. So yeah. there's time and place for it, but it doesn't have to be that all the time. So. Right, oh, of course not. I'm and I'm I'm extremely grateful and humbled by what you said. And I I remember when you reached out. I'll never forget it. <laughs> and what really dawned on me as we started to talk, and then then you came over to um, New York and the headquarters, and then of course you invited me to the Air Force Base out in Washington. You were really kind of my first behind the scenes exposure to the military. Quite frankly. I didn't know many people in the military, and I certainly, certainly had never met uh, anyone of your rank. And I, I don't know if you were a colonel yet when you were in Washington. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was a brand new colonel. You were a brand yeah. new colonel. Yeah. yeah, I mean, pretty hot, pretty darn high up there. <laughs> and when you, through through your actions, through your words, and obviously through meeting your people, I had no idea how much EQ, emotional intelligence, was used in the military. I mean, I just didn't, I didn't know that this just, I don't even know how to say it. It sounds so cryptic when I think about it now after knowing you, but I I really didn't know that it was okay to have and showcase vulnerability, generosity, gratitude, compassion, kindness. I really didn't because in the movies, of course, you see, you know, a full metal jacket or, you know, oh, yeah. which yeah. is like as rigid as rigid can be. And don't you dare show me weakness in your armor because I'm going to get you, you know, you, you'll be weak. And you really exposed me to another, another side of it and, and how eager you were to learn more about EQ and, 
and how to apply that as a leader and how to apply that in teams really it really blew me away and it gave me an incredibly different view of the military now i'm not saying it's one size fits all and all colonels do that i understand that but you do and that's what i got yeah, yeah you know it's I, I certainly have a passion for learning about it and teaching it and you know i've taught uh, a lot of airmen, uh, whether they're in uniform or civilian federal employees, um, even some local community groups uh, uh, here in uh, just east of St. Louis, um, you know, like a chamber of commerce group. I, I just taught a class uh, back in July for them and uh, really enjoyed it. And when I started reading really Daniel Goldman's work, kind of probably in the mid 2000s, you know, he had written a lot in the 90s, but, you know, I was just kind of getting into this leadership journey, you know, I had some really incredible uh, leaders, either base commanders that I've worked for as their kind of executive officers that, you know, they were the definition of servant leaders. So, you know, I do feel like I was pretty fortunate to be surrounded by some of these folks. You know, one is the commandant down at Virginia Tech, General uh, Randall Fullhart. You would be floored at the style of servant leadership that he puts on display day in and day out. Um, you know, I always just loved riding in a car with him and he'd be talking about things that are or talking about the Disney effect. Like, hey, we ought to take pride in where we work. And it's the little things that do matter. And, you know, I think we uh, we watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life one time. Like We all got in the theater and he, he, he made us watch It's a Wonderful Life. But he had a whole lesson plan behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not very long, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes. But I tell you that it was interesting. I can remember going in, there were a couple of different showings so that we could get a lot of people on the base to go see it. And, you know, they even served up popcorn and everything. And and so there was a lot of like scratching heads going, okay, we're in the military. Why is the Colonel asking us to come watch this? But if you just get your mind out of your daily work, sit in a dark movie theater and watch It's a Wonderful Life. There is so much there. And then when he started going through the lesson plan and, and the, you know, talking about the characters and their interactions and relationships and beliefs, and we're like, whoa, I've never picked a film like that apart to that level, you know? But, yeah. it, but it showed me, hey, this leadership thing can be a whole lot more. Like you can do a lot more. You can test some things out. It may not have worked, right? You know, there was a potential. You know, he he, he takes risks too, just like any other leader would. I would hope they would, but um, I'll tell you, it worked for me. And and I know several others were, you know, I can remember this maintenance officer sitting next to me, and he's just like, you know, think of a maintenance officer who works in airplanes all day. You know, he's a little bit dirty, and you know, it's <laughs> just put out the cigarette. You know, right. I'm probably typecasting too much here, but a good maintainer will say that. That nope, that's dead on. Um, you know, maybe swears a little too much. That's okay, but yeah, we we're kind of looking at each other, going, "This was kind of cool." I mean, you know, like I go, "Are you admitting that? You know, are you admitting this is kind of cool?" Because I'm going to admit that. Yeah. Uh, You know, and it's just taking those subtle risks to show somebody or a team there could be some goodness out there. There's a Mm -hmm. kindness on display is not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, you're you're not going to lose macho points. You know, (laughs) Helen's another person. You love them. You know, I, I, I tell my mentors I love them. They they say the same thing to me. You know, it's a relationship I have with former bosses. We're not afraid to use that word, you know, even with with colleagues, too. You know, there's still professionalism in the military. So don't get me wrong. There's still customs and courtesies and things like that. And those are important because that's the image that I hope Americans have of the United States military is we are a professional organization. Uh, We are in the management of violence. You know, uh, unfortunately, that's what we do, but that's what you want us to do. Um, and we're going to go fight our nation's wars. Um, there's not a lot of us either, and we would love to have more. And so by talking to someone like you and maybe bringing you into my world, that's what I think we in the military should be doing better and vice versa. The civilian world should be talking with the military. We, yeah. we call that the civ-mill divide. Mm-hmm. And we're always trying to figure out how can we communicate who we are? We're not just, you know, ground pounders, no brains. No, the, the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coasties, uh, guardians that I worked with, they're some of the most brilliant people uh, 
music majors that are flying fighter jets, you know, um, uh, young airmen with PhDs hmm. who you wouldn't even think they barely had a GED, you wow. know, yeah. I mean, it is amazing what some of these folks can do. And I just hope that we can find the right place at the right time for them to lead. You yeah. know, that that's what I want. So. I love that. I love that you said that because, um, because there is such a, uh, the media does, I think, portray yeah. people in the military as pretty one-sided, if you think about it. Yeah. And yet, even before we go into the leadership skills and the, the um, emotional intelligence and the cognitive intelligence of a human being there, we need to remember that these are also people that have decided to be of service to our country and thus to every single person in our country. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. extremely altruistic, extremely. And um, yeah, I mean, down to the fact that you all in the military and, you know, your different sections of the military dress the same. There ain't, there ain't no, you know, I feel like wearing purple today. Yeah. You're going to wear yeah, pants. You're going to wear green. Yeah. You're going to wear gray. And, and yeah. your uniqueness will shine because of the color of your eyes. That's the difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, all of it. I mean, and I think to your point, we could do a much better job at um, shortening that divide or filling that divide in by building more bridges because there is so much to learn from the leadership that goes on with our United States military. Like it's just mind-boggling yeah. and you really opened my eyes to it. And I'm, I'm oh, ever grateful. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I, I appreciate those comments a lot. I, I'm sure others that have served appreciate that too a lot. Um, you know, I, I think what I hear from folks, um, you know, like yourself, which just maybe had limited exposure and they come into our world. Yeah, they don't see it like anything like it is in the films or the media. Um, you know, now there are certain career fields like I, hey, I want these folks to be this way, you mm -hmm. know, because maybe the nature of the work, like I'm okay with the way they are. Um, yeah. You know, um, they're different for me or, or there are times when I need to act like, okay, I'm going to play Maverick today. I'm getting on it and I'm going to show you all what we need to do today to get to this goal or to complete yeah. our mission. Um, you know, so we can turn that on and off, uh, you know, when it's needed. But um, the thing I always hear most from folks um, is that don't have a lot of exposure is they're just floored by how much education or insight leadership, you know, how much we value education. And, um, you know, that's something we talk a lot about when, um, you know, uh, folks transition such, such as myself i just recently retired that has talked a lot about in private industry that hey don't overlook uh a, a separating a retired um uh, military member from applying for this job because they're gonna bring way more skills uh than than some of the other uh, candidates out there potentially so um you know we do bring a lot to the table and uh you know i think some folks feel like they get Maybe there's in such a technical career field like uh, explosive ordnance disposal, right? You know, there's not a lot of jobs for out there in, in the private sector for that. You know, my police uh, agency. You know, if you go to New York, they have an EOD unit. And Boston does. You know, you know, they're all an arm of the police force. But however, I would look at the leadership skills that they've garnered, not just the technical skills. And that might be, hey, I know you were a mechanic working on jet engines, but you actually have some great HR skills. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you like to work here? You know, yeah. um, you know, so, and I think sometimes we um, uh, fall victim to that thinking too, like, wow, well, yeah, all I did was fire plans. I can't really do anything else, you know? So Yeah, I, I hear you. And well, A, this goes back to the diversity, uh, diversity of um, of thinking that you and I yeah. both value highly. When we, when we think about DE&I, it's, it's holistic. And so how that person thinks and the curiosities that they bring to the table are, that's how we learn, quite frankly, yeah. and, you know, to get out of the way I think. And um, the uh, so many thoughts I just had, but I can re recall clearly, you know, a lot of your posts that you would share during our, our time of knowing one another and while you were um, active, 
you would post, you know, six, seven, eight books that you were reading at that time and it blew me away. Yeah. And I thought to myself, hey, where, where does this colonel have this time? And, you know, did they teach him speed reading? And, um, and uh, yeah, at one course I did get speed reading. Yeah. yeah. But how fascinating, like the books that you were reading were like phenomenal leadership, character, behavior building psychology books, philosophy books. And that always, yeah, I used to really, I don't know, it just really opened, opened me up every time I would see those posts, like, wow. And it would, it would, it was like a um, um, book review in a way, because then I yeah. up some yeah. of those books, which was, which was great. Well, yeah, I kind of reached a point where people were asking, can you just post <laughs> what you're reading? So I actually was doing that for others, but it was kind of fun. I'm like, yeah, I just, you know, I jammed through that book, you know. Yeah, you let's, gobbled let's through it. You gobbled through it. I was going to say one thing about the different skill sets. So, you know, for example, why that, uh, what did you call it? The, the, the person that, you know, not the mechanic, but the puts, puts oh, all the explosive EOD. Sorry. Yeah. The EOD. The amount of teamwork and communication that must go on within that sector is incredible because you're working with explosives and one, you know, one wrong move or, you know, you, you itch your nose and the next thing you know, boom. And it reminds me of this fascination I had some years ago, um, three, four years ago with pit crews, Formula One yeah. pit crews, and did a lot of um, interviewing of pit crew coaches and the pit crew folks, the gentlemen, for the most part, I think it was all gentlemen, and thinking about that type of teamwork and the precision down to the millisecond that people had to be in sync with one another in order to, oh, yeah. and, and, uh, and I'm sure obviously flying and, you know, catching the jets when they come off, come down onto the boats. And yeah, I'm not even saying these things properly, but um, the, just the precision and what, what, the, the amount of training that needs to go in to a team to make sure that those milliseconds matter and we're all eyes wide open during those milliseconds. It, it's, it is a lot. Um, you know, in, in my world, uh, you know, talk about tank uh, air to air refueling. Okay. So here are two aircraft coming together in time and space, you know, in the sky uh, you know, meeting at a point a certain time, uh, we expect each other to be there within about 30 seconds of each other, if not sooner. Um, and then it's just a slow dance where the receiver, um, if if this is the tanker, the receiver is usually about a thousand feet below and it slowly gets into position until it's about 50 feet behind the aircraft. And the boom operator who has really got the picture in the back of the tanker aircraft looking at the receiver, he, he's the one, he or she will clear that aircraft for contact, basically. We're, we're now going to connect, right? And then it's a slow one feet, one foot per second climb up until you get to about 15 feet. And, and, and you can actually see the hose. It's it's more rigid than just, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a steel hose that comes out the back of the airplane. You can literally see it. And I've flown... Um, um, airlift aircraft so i've been on the other end too and i can watch this thing right in my windscreen and it's it's about a foot or two from hitting the wow. windscreen as we're doing two three hundred miles an hour you know Elza, you're yeah. flying two or three hundred miles an hour while that's happening oh yeah we're probably at uh 22 feet you know Whoa. so we're potentially in the weather too we're right yep. there where the clouds are and yep. you know we try to find clear air um yeah. and, and uh we are in a either in orbit or we're on a kind of a, a, a path that we have to follow so that we're out of the way of other uh, air traffic. Um, and so, yeah. And so I watch this thing. I, I'm not even paying attention to that. I'm actually watching the airplane. I'm not paying attention to that, right. that boom at all. So yeah, it's coming at my face, coming at my face. And then I can kind of see in my periphery, it just goes over my head because the receptacle is, is behind me right. on top of the aircraft. Oof. And, uh, you know, and I'm looking for the signals and underneath the aircraft, there's some signals, like some lights and things that kind of tell me position and that. But I'm also looking 
I'm looking at how the engine looks on the tanker aircraft, like in my windscreen. Like I know that if, you know, the number three engine is up here in the corner, I'm probably in a good forward aft position. And I know if, you know, this, this bolt on that flap is here, I'm at a good elevation. Like you're looking at those details and it, it does take a, a lot of training to get really good at it. And the one thing that you have to do is remain calm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's a, there's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember if it's still in there or not, but there used to be in the owner's manual for the uh, KC-135, the Boeing KC-135. Uh, it was uh, right up front. It was a big warning that used to say something to the effect of, you know, flying two aircraft in close vertical proximity is inherently dangerous due to the aerodynamic effects of, of, of both aircraft, you know, because when you get up that close with one big airplane next to another, boy, they react it's like compressing air that can't compress anymore, right? You know, and so this, it becomes this dance. But you know, my instructors that were teaching me how to do this, you know, they're always saying like, "Wiggle the fingers, wiggle the toes," and I can hear that in my headset. You know, it's like, "Wiggle the fingers, wiggle the toes," because they're looking at the either the the whiteness of my knuckles, and they can see that I need to just loosen up. Wow. They can look look at my body language. Yeah. Uh, look at how I'm sitting, you know, are we the same height? Are we seeing the same picture? And sure enough, yeah, over time, it just became like fishing. You know, you, you settle down, you relax, maybe wow. just lightly, you know, hang on to the flight stick and just, you know, work the throttles ever so gently, like pressure versus movements, and you get really good at it. But it does, it takes a lot of training because then the next time you do it, all of a sudden now you're in, in close to moderate turbulence, the environment's changed. Yeah. Well, what's this? You know, um, now we got to work through some environmental conditions here that I didn't have the last time. Um, the communication's got to be spot on. You know, so, if that boom operator tells me to break away, break away, break away. They are leaving us hopefully in a, you know as fast as they can out in front of us, and I am dropping away and going down it to, so that we don't get pulled mm -hmm. into each other. Mm -hmm. um, any of these things that are dangerous like this that we do in the military and there's a lot of them um it is about communication but it's more than just the verbal you right. know you know pilots in fire aircraft you know they wear a helmet um you know some of the aircraft they do as well um with the mask down um the oxygen mask on with the you know sunshade down you know you can't see anything i can tell you you can read body language even with a helmet on wow you know? You can just sense when something maybe is a, uh, the other one's uptight. I, I can remember flying formation flights. We're three feet apart from another airplane and uh, in pilot training. And yeah, you can see kind of when they're a little bit nervous or when they're a little bit tense or when it's going good, you're in flow. And oh my gosh, you I have not it. seen my hands, <laughs> but I was down here wringing my hands. You and I really like, appreciate seeing this. I know you my would. My body just got like tense in terms of like three feet. I mean, you're three feet away from each other. And I love, <laughs> I love being a passenger on a flight. I, I yeah. do love flying, but no thing. The only thing I would love to <laughs> do is be able to sit in the cockpit and see the vast earth it's beautiful yeah. so yeah that's the other side of it um you know pilots are, anybody on an air crew is generally pretty busy you know there are certainly times when we're crossing the ocean you got some time to kind of you know um if you're in a big aircraft you can you know walk downstairs and, you know, grab a cup of coffee and you can stretch your, your legs a little bit. It's kind of hard to do that in a fire aircraft. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's one of the benefits of flying the, the heavies, as we call them. But I really did, uh, uh, I miss seeing that, you know, because you can see the curvature of the earth. You can look at the world where like, you know what, you know, there's all these things going on in life down there, but it looks beautiful from up here. And you know, I think you got to do that with leadership too. You got to, I used to tell a lot of young leaders coming up and they're honing their craft. You've got to uh, view things like you're looking in a microscope. Zoom in, zoom out. Do that more than once. Don't just stay at the 20,000 foot perspective. Right. right. Go down and visit. Try to get 
you know, the frontline perspective and then come back maybe up to a different power, you know, flip it to a different power and see it from there. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you do need to spend your time kind of doing this if you really want a, a richer picture. And that and that it probably means more listening and watching than talking. <laughs> You know, Amen. as the leader, I, you know, there are times, yeah, I talk too much. I know it. Uh, my senior listed have tell, told me that and others. <laughs> um, but I tell you, um, I am listening to, I, I I got pretty good uh, perception of what's kind of going on. And I love to just watch folks just tackle something and, um, you know, not intervene, but let them struggle through it. And, and I see that, you know, as we talk about generational workforces, you know, some generations are really good at struggling through things and, and some are just not as equipped to do that. And and so I think when we find um, folks that maybe aren't as equipped, we got to give them those experiences in a safe environment. I'm not going to let them crash the car, but I'm going to let them struggle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, Kim Scroggins, Generation Y, she talks about this. She's an incredible uh, a leader in kind of uh, teaching about generational workforces. She talks, she calls it struggle time. And she goes, next time, you know, you got a team that maybe they're Gen Gen Z uh, and, and they're not used to struggling. She goes, all right, five minutes struggle time. I'm going to let you work through this. Uh, don't come to me for five minutes. Okay. And, and you know what? That That's maybe necessary for that generation. I, I, you know, you and I needed something different for our generation. So, yeah. but um, you have to zoom in and out. It's beautiful at all levels if you really look at it. So, oh. That's a perfect place to end for today. It is beautiful <laughs> at all levels. It really is. Scott, thank you so much. It's just an honor to have an hour with you and pick your brain. And I'd like to do it again and again and again. Absolutely. So back. Where can folks find you right now? So uh, I am I'm certainly on LinkedIn, Instagram at J Scott Heathman. Uh, one Scott or one T and Scott. So I'm, I'm a little different that way. Um, but uh, I've also just, you know, as I retired, I'm trying to get into coaching and consulting and teaching. And so I've got a, a I've just started a, a sole proprietorship, Elevating Others. So elevating-others.com. Uh, you can find me there too. But uh, yeah, please reach out. I, I, I love meeting strangers and yeah. uh, getting to hear their story. So thank you for allowing this stranger to meet you. So you. oh God, I'm better for it. It will put all your um your business and and where to find you in the in the notes, of course. And uh yeah, this was uh, the greatest stranger moment six and a half years ago. So thank you again, Scott. Really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Carl. Love love you lots and we'll catch up again soon, all right? See ya. Take care. <laughs>